0: How wonderful it is to be able to meet here this morning in the house of the Lord, to worship Him in spirit and in truth, and to have fellowship one with another. Some of our folks are away from us today. One family is uh, at the youth conference up in Gatlinburg or that vicinity, maybe in Pigeon Forge. And uh, we have uh, the Hicks family, Uh, Chris is preaching this morning in Baghdad, and so we miss all of them. But uh, they're out doing good works for the Lord, too. And uh, we have some who have been sick that are back with us, and we are very happy for that. And I'm sure that we have some guests in our audience this morning. And for your presence, we are doubly delighted. We hope you'll come again. Brother Mike Piper will be coming down the aisle with our study guides For those of you who are new, uh, you can take one of these. It'll have an outline of the lesson in it. You can fill in some blanks and pretty well have the outline complete uh, before we close the service this morning. And we hope that you will, as always, take your Bible and search the Scriptures with us. Jesus urged the people of his day to search the Scriptures, and we are no less obligated than were they. Uh, The Bereans are commended in the New Testament for their searching the Scriptures to see whether what Paul was preaching was in harmony with the Old Testament Scriptures. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament, and so we're doubly blessed, and let's take seriously the responsibility that we have. Someone said once, be careful what you ask for and what change you desire because uh, you might live to regret it. Change is sometimes inevitable and even good, but sometimes it can be quite harmful and very damaging. So we need to be careful what we ask for in reference to change from a religious standpoint. So we're posing the question this morning with an exclamation point after it. So you want change? Are you sure that the change you desire is the change that you ought to make? The process of conversion, of course, involves a change. And that is the true change that is needed. We are to be converted to Christ. We are converted by the truth. Revealed in God's Word. The preaching of the gospel results in lives being changed. I can tell you of people that I've known, could talk about it a long time this morning, but that's not our purpose, whose lives have been changed dramatically by the gospel of Christ. I've had people tell me, if you only knew what I once was, Well, it's not my business to know. God knows, and he is the one about whom we ought to be concerned. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. I'd like for you to imagine with me for a moment a conversation. Two people are talking. Person one says, why is Walmart called Walmart? Person two says, well, I don't know, but it could have something to do with the name of the founder, Sam Walton. That's where Walmart, I guess, came from, wasn't it? The Walton family, not those that lived on Walton's Mountain now. I think this family lived over in Arkansas. But Walmart was started, and uh, we have that name Walmart. Well, the other person says, Well, I don't like that name. What do you mean you don't like that? Well, I just don't like that name, Walmart. I think we need to change that to community mart. How would that be? That, That sounds a whole lot better. That would involve everybody in the community. Well, I don't know about that. But the other fellow is pretty persistent. He said, I'll tell you what. I so detest that name that I'm going to make an investment. I will buy the sign and give you permission to put it up and we'll change the name of that structure to Community Mart." The other fellow says, well... I don't know about that. That building doesn't belong to me. That business doesn't belong to me. I I don't have the authority to do that. But the other fellow says, well, wait a minute. I am giving you permission. But the other gentleman comes back and says, wait a minute. You don't have the authority to give me permission to change it. I don't know about you, but I've seen some signs that I would love to change. Sometimes when I drive I 40 and Barbara's sitting by my side, and we come upon that sign that says, Love Shack. Any, any of the rest of you seen it? I told her, if I was a mean and conniving fellow, I would get me some paint. And in the dark of night, when there's no traffic on I-40, that's a laugh, isn't it? I would bring my ladder and sneak up over there, and I would paint over the word love, and I would write L-U-S-T. Would that be a more accurate description? I personally think it would. Am I going to do that? No, I'm not going to do that because I don't have the permission to do it. I didn't pay for that signboard. We have freedom of speech in this land. I don't have the authority to do that. As much as I disagree with that sentiment, I don't have the authority to do that. That's what this lesson is about today. There are some critics who predict that the non-instrumental churches of Christ are on the demise and are going to die. In fact, there's a lot of them that would like to sing the elegy, that is a song of mourning, and they would love to deliver the eulogy and pronounce the non-instrumental churches of Christ dead. There's not anything new with that particular desire on the part of a lot of people. In the New Testament, we read that the early church was the sect everywhere spoken against. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and a lot of others did not like them. They were viewed as heretical, a group of heretics, that were bent on destroying Judaism. Never mind the fact that it was God himself who said, there's going to be a new covenant given one of these days, and the old is going to pass away, and the new is going to be brought in. So the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures predicted that there is coming a kingdom that's going to be established that will stand forever. It's going to be eternal. And it's going to fulfill all the types and shadows of the old law. And then that old law is going to pass away with the dawning of a much better covenant and a much better day, spiritually speaking. Because Judaism was for the Jews. The gospel is for everyone. All nations would hear it. It would be the message that every creature needed to hear. Remember Mark 16, 15 and 16? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. All people needed to hear it. But if you study the history of the previous two centuries, the 19th and the 20th centuries, you will find that many churches went through a period of transition, departing from the ancient order, the old Jerusalem gospel, and brought in innovations of every sort that could be imagined. And there is that trend continually, or continuing rather, among churches in general. Uh, We've got to give people what they desire. We've got to provide all these creature comforts. We've got to think about ourselves. And in view of all that, we've lost our mission. Our mission is to seek and to save the lost, to take the gospel to every creature, to all nations. And guess what? That includes our neighborhood. That includes this town. That includes this county, this state. But sometimes we can forget that. The approach that some have taken to biblical authority. Well, that's, you know, the Bible is open for interpretation of various sorts, and it doesn't say the same thing to the same people all the time. And it may change from Day to day, year to year, week to week, no. That's not the nature of truth. Truth is truth is truth is truth. Remember Scotty Yaman saying sin is sin is sin is sin. And you can call it something else as long as you want to, but that doesn't change it. And the same thing is true about the truth. We must have biblical authority. There have been a lot of name changes. I've known congregations of the church that have gone to that community mart thing. We'll have a community church. Well, it's good to have the Lord's church present in every community. And we designate congregations of the Lord's church by a particular community to give the location just as they did in New Testament times, the church at Corinth. Church at Philippi, the seven churches of Asia, all seven of them are named. They were in different localities, and so they were designated that way. The church at Ephesus, Thyatira, Sardis, so on. That is to designate which congregation you're talking about. Worship innovation has taken place. The instrument of music has been brought in. In many places, if the instrument itself, they supply it and use it in their worship services. It's not necessarily wrong to hear the sound of music within these walls, but in periods of worship, it's not heard. I remember many years ago when those newfangled watches came out that had the alarms on them. There was a fella sitting right over there. And a certain time came during the service and that watch went off and it was playing just like that. And he was slapping and knocking and trying his best to get it off. We know that's not a part of the worship. That's just one of those things that happened and he was embarrassed by it and apologized for it. I personally thought it was a little funny, especially when I watched all the things that he was doing to try to get it off. He didn't know enough about it, I guess, to turn it off. And the same thing has happened with cell phones, hasn't it? We're not talking about that, those incidents that do occur. We're talking about saying we're going to have this instrument of music in our worship, there are even those who have tried to compromise and say, well, we'll have a non-instrumental service and we'll have an instrumental service. Think about that. Are you sure you want the change? The words progressive or the word progressive is used a whole lot. We're making progress. With all these innovations, we're progressing. There were brethren back in the two previous centuries that said it's not progressive, it's digressive you are departing from the established order. So don't get the words confused. Those who are saying, oh, we need to be progressive, we need to make progress in taking the gospel to the lost, in growing spiritually as individuals and as a congregation. We need to be progressive and make progress in liberality. But when we start tampering with our worship, the plan of salvation. Well, you know, somebody says, I, ju- I wouldn't say that you absolutely have to be immersed in order to be saved from your sin. They say, oh, that's that's progressive. We've got we to get over this. You have to do this thing or that thing. Well, are you sure that faith is necessary? Are you sure that repentance is necessary? Why, well, sure, well, sure. Then why not baptism? Because the same Lord that said you've got to believe and you've got to repent said you've got to be baptized. He's not going to force you to. It's an act of the free will that acts in view of the enlightenment that one has received from the truth, the Scriptures. Let's think about two principles. The principle of authority... And ownership. That little imaginary conversation could be credited to a preaching brother down in uh, Georgia, because he often uses that approach in studying with people, and he will just pick out a particular business and say, "Let's let's change the name of that," and they go through that discussion. And growing out of that, uh, that illustration used by Brother Steve Weiss, I want to ask you these five questions. Number one, who owns the church? Jesus does. He purchased it. Acts 20, verse 28. It belongs to him. Therefore, if the name is going to be changed or anything else is going to be changed about it, you need to consult the owner because he purchased the church. Remember, that guy said, Well, I don't own that building. The church is the building of God. It's not this physical structure. It's a spiritual structure. The one he said he would build. So if he purchased the church with his blood, it belongs to him, doesn't it? And the Bible clearly says that it did, or that he did. Question two is, who's the bridegroom of the church? If you look at 2 Corinthians, I 2 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, you'll find that Paul told the church at Corinth, I have espoused you to Christ. You are married to Christ. Now, if the church is married to Christ, Christ must be the bridegroom. And I know that there are some trends away from this, but For as long as I can remember, the wife takes the husband's name. And I've told Barbara many times I am honored that you wear my name. She chose to do that. We choose to become a Christian, a part of the church. So we are married to Christ, who is the bridegroom. Whose name then should we wear? Well, I want to wear any name I want to wear. Not if you belong to Christ. Not if you are married to Christ. Why wouldn't you want to wear his name? I saw a building not long ago that had the name Launch Point on it. The Launch Point, like launching a rocket. The Launch Point Church. Now, we need to be launched on a mission, taking the gospel into all the world. We need to be energized and motivated to do that, but do you think that's an acceptable name? You think of all the other things, all the other names that you could come up with. Whose name should a bride wear? We've already answered that, haven't we? Another question, whose body is the church? Ephesians 1, and 23, identify the church as the body of Christ. I don't know how language could be any clearer than are the scriptures on this point. When Paul wrote to the Colossians, he told them the same thing. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he told them the same thing. The church is the body of Christ. So the church belongs to him. Who is the head of the church? Ephesians 5.23 points out, says specifically, that Christ is the head of the church. There's no debating about that if you believe the Bible. Sometimes we get mail here that says on the envelope, Mr. Edward Anderson, owner. <laughs> I, I kid you not. I have gotten mail like that. It, it Sometimes will even have Carthy's Church of Christ, Edward Anderson, owner. I got a newspaper. I don't own the church. And no other human being does. It's amazing how people reason and think in the face of scriptures, scripture after scripture that points out very clearly who the head of the church is, who built the church. Well, Sam Walton built Walmart. He didn't build every building that Walmart occupies personally and with his own hands. I'm sure he started out working with his own hands, and working really hard from what I've read about him. And I respect and honor him for that. But we didn't build the church. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Notice, he said, I will build, and when I have built it, it will be mine, not anybody else's. God is a jealous God. The word jealous sometimes is used in a very bad sense, and it is. But basically and fundamentally, the word has a marvelous meaning. It simply denotes a desire to have that which belongs to one. It doesn't preclude love, doesn't push that out or anything. And the Father said to Israel of old, I'm a jealous God. He had a lot invested in her redemption from Egyptian bondage. And he also has a lot invested in our redemption from sin. So he still has every right to be a jealous guy. The principle of ownership and authority, don't ever forget that. Second principle is the principle of seed and sowing. Those who are worried or maybe even praying for the demise of the Lord's church need to remember that as long as there is seed and that seed is sown, the church will exist. That parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13, again in Luke 8, is a very powerful one indeed. And it talks about the principle of sowing and reaping. In that parable, you will find three fundamental parts. A sower, sowing, seed, scattered, and soil, receiving. Those three things are emphasized in that parable. That's the crux of the parable. A sower went forth to sow. What did he sow? He scattered seed. And the soil received it. As he scattered the seed, it landed in every type of soil that you can imagine. The soil is what determines the results, isn't it? The sower, you see, has done his part. He has purchased seed, he has taken it out, and he has scattered it and sown it. The soil produces after its kind. And so does seed. Seed have a powerful ability. Many of you remember my story about the parking lot beginning to buckle up and and crack and just swell. And I thought, we just paved the parking lots many years ago. I thought, what in the world is going on? It was about this time of year. Lo and behold, in a few days, beautiful buttercups came up through that asphalt and bloomed. And we had to dig all of that out and get rid of it. That shows you, I know that buttercups come from above. But that shows you how powerful the germ of life is. I grew up on a farm. We planted corn, wheat, oats, so many things. It was always amazing to me how we would drill that corn into the rows that daddy had laid off and we had, quote, double furrowed. That's when you use a bull-tongue plow to freshen the soil where it has been laid off with a turning plow, And then we would drill that with a corn drill drawn by a mule. And that corn would disappear. In a few days, we'd go back. And uh, especially early in the morning, sun just coming up, And you would see that corn peeping up. Crows would find it too. And they would pull it up while it still had the kernel on the root. And you'd find one that was left sometimes. But it was amazing how that little grain of corn had life in it enough to push aside the dirt and the clods of dirt and push that plant out of the ground. Now that gives you some idea of the power that is within seed. Right here is the seed of the kingdom. It'll push clods aside. It'll break through crusts. It'll do lots of things. It is a powerful, powerful thing. When it is preached in its purity and simplicity and power, enters the hearts of good and honest people, It will change them, and sometimes it will break the heart of a hardened sinner. When the soil is good, or is prepared and softened by the power of the gospel, good things will come from it. And seed always brings forth after its kind. My job was to drop the pumpkin seed in the, furrows when I was too little to do anything else. And boy, that got tiring. Row after row after row on those little hillsides. So when I got out to the end, sometime I'd look this way and look that way. Everybody was going in the other direction. I'd throw a big handful of those seed down in the row, kick some dirt over them. That way you got rid of your seeds, so you didn't have to drop so many individual pumpkin seeds. Every one of those came up. Daddy'd always say, Well, saw so you throw the handful out right there, didn't you? I mean, your sins will find you out. Sooner or later they will. But the pumpkins came from pumpkin seeds. The corn came from corn seeds, and it's true down the line. Seed produces after its kind. What is this seed to produce? It's to produce New Testament Christians. That's all. New Testament Christians. The kingdom and the church will exist as long as the seed exists. Well, do we have anything to assure us and comfort us? Look back again at Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, listen to this carefully now, will by no means pass away. There is nothing powerful enough to destroy the eternal word of God. Not one thing. My word will by no means pass away. There's nothing that can destroy it. It's like the proverbial anvil. Well, the literal anvil that wires out the hammers, not the other way around. And the skeptic's blows have been rained upon it for centuries and centuries and centuries, but we're still reading from it, and preaching it and teaching it today. The church, friends, will continue as long as the seed is sown. We need to stay busy sowing the seed of the kingdom. Brother Phil Sanders gives some encouraging words. He wrote them not long ago. He said that in his travels across the brotherhood, he said, there are many churches that are thriving. They're growing as they have never grown before. And yet there are those church growth experts who says, no, it can't be done. If you keep on this path of just uh, preaching and, and worshiping as we have, uh, we, we got to change. We got to make some changes in order to draw people and convert people to Christ. He said, no, that's, that's not true the gospel will still do its job. Let's be sure that we don't replace sowing the seed with what could be called religious sociology. Let's put our emphasis on social things. Now, we're a sociable people. We love fellowship, and when that fellowship is broken, it, it hurts. When people depart from the faith and leave the church, a lot of people want to talk about felt needs, friends. Jesus talked about self-denial. Matthew sixteen twenty-four. If anyone will deny himself and come after Me, is what He said. So many times, well, I just, I just need this, you know, I, I need this particular thing to be done. Or that some of those creature comforts. I've known of people that left certain congregations because. Well, their pews aren't padded or whatever. A person is saved and added to the church today just like they were in the book of Acts. They heard and believed and obeyed the gospel. And you know, there are people today who say, I'm going to join a church or I'm going to do this, that, or the other. Becoming a part of the church is not so much man's prerogative as it is God's. The point has been made that on Judgment Day, it will not be a matter of of if you're on the church roll. It'll be a matter of, is your name in the Lamb's Book of Life? That will be the determining factor. And the Bible is very clear about that. The old Jerusalem gospel is still God's power to save. I hope you'll obey it today if you've never become a New Testament Christian. If you have, but you've become unfaithful and gone back to the world of sin and all of those things that go with it. Come back home from that far country. Acknowledge your sins. The Father will receive you again just as he did the prodigal. So come, if you're subject, as together we stand and sing.